Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Hello again. It's Dr. Bill Choby. Uh, we've been talking about liberty in America, past, present, and future. And uh, much of this is based upon uh, my own personal experiences uh, in this next chapter. This has to do with the economics of liberty. Now, think about you know, how, uh, how much freedom you'd have if you didn't have any money. Well, you know, money in your hand allows you to do a lot of things. And in order to have that, uh, it, we've got to be able to understand uh, what uh, the economics of our freedom is about and the role that government plays in this. Few people understand the origin of um, American capitalist society. Now, mind you, uh, many people uh, think that socialism is good because um, there was in the Bible after and the Acts of the Apostles, the uh, new believers got together, they pulled their resources, and so that sort of set the, uh, uh, I guess, the, the idea into the head of many that if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for everybody. But that really, was the way they structured it was not exactly what we would call socialism, because it was based upon uh, the free giving and um, with the understanding that uh, giving to the Lord, uh, giving to others through tithes and offerings, would be would lead to greater blessings as well. Uh, socialism has taken that uh, to develop what's called liberation theology, and uh, part of that is really to uh, create a myth about the um, moral superiority of uh, socialism. It's um, something that we've really become more and more aware of it within the past couple of years with uh, what's happened to the United States federal government. But the um, the idea of capitalism, which essentially is capitalism means privatism or property. Socialism is not privacy and it means that you don't have control over your property because you're sort of putting it all in in the middle of the uh, bucket and people take as they need. So capitalism really is a, a misnomer. It's it's a poorly, poorly understood term because it's, uh, well, poorly understood. And we really should be talking about socialism versus privatism or personalism to really uh, get the, the the full concept of of uh, what the, the term means, capitalism. Remember that our um, Declaration of Independence said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that term was carried over into our Constitution, life, liberty, and property, and even affirmed in the 14th Amendment, life, liberty, and property. That's really what, what capitalism is means, private property. And it's really... Um, what we have to uh, remember when we're getting into conversations with people who push the idea of democracy and socialism, they, you know, it's mixing half-truths uh, with, uh, with lies in order to enhance the veracity of the lie. But it's like mixing apples and oranges. But uh, when you do that, you end up with a fruit salad rather than something that's clearly defined. And this is what the left will do. It's a clever trick. You mix a little truth with a, a bigger lie, and you can say it's morally superior to what truth would provide. Well, the truth is, if we look at it from a biblical standpoint, and particularly in the parable of the talents, uh, we can learn from that that uh, when the master went away and left 10 coins into the hands of his servant, uh, that he expected that to be invested and used until he returned. The same was the story with the five coins. 
and uh, that uh, the ten the, the individual with the ten coins and the five coins both used it wisely. But the one that got the one coin was so afraid of losing it that he buried it. And at the end of that uh, parable, the the master admonitioned the uh, servant for being foolish, and he took the one that he had given him. He took it away again. So the idea of of um, mixing everything together in a big pot and everybody takes what they need. There's the core uh, tenement of communism and uh, socialism is just a gradual way to get there. But in America, the idea of properties, personal property, was unique back at the time of the, the pilgrims when they landed in 1621. Their intent was to build a city of God, literally a, a, a new Jerusalem. And so they used what they thought they interpreted their Geneva Bibles to say uh, as how they were to relate to one another in uh, their Mayflower Compact. You recall that we used, uh, we referenced that as the first written agreement between free men to govern themselves in the Western civilization. And it was the foundation, the idea was the foundation that served as a blueprint for our later constitutions. But this happened the first year that the pilgrims were um, off the Mayflower landing on Plymouth Rock. And by the way, I may have mentioned before, the water levels the same at Plymouth Rock then as it is today. And there's no global warming. and Manhattan Island's not going to be submerged. Uh, it's, it's all a myth. It's all part of that mixing apples and oranges. And you get fruit salad, remember? Uh, so they, they, when the pilgrims landed, they had... Uh, they were not in good shape physically, but they were able to put together uh, some sort of uh, um, farmland or, or some sort of crops. Remind you that the uh, the Algonquin Indians who had cleared the land uh, it became infected with smallpox brought over by the different explorers, European explorers, and that wiped out their community there. But they left behind the fields that were ready to be uh, plowed and, and uh, worked. So the, the pilgrims went in there and they did this communal type living thing. And by the time the fall came around, everybody felt that, well, there's, there's going to be enough. But it turned out that there wasn't. And following spring, many of them were dying of starvation and other uh, uh, diseases related to exposure and, and malnutrition. So the, the governor at that time, uh, William Bradford, saw that this was something that they repeated it for another year. There wouldn't be much of their colony left. So he came up with a solution where uh, he offered seven-acre tracts of land uh, for and multiples of that for each family member. And so each of the families had their own tract of land, and he basically said, you know, um, he posted the uh, uh, a quote from uh, St. Paul's second letter to Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, and he put this on the door of the community hall, and basically it says, if, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. I remember that the the, the pilgrims who were you know, living there in, in, in destitution had nothing more to do <laughs> than to try to do something. But they sat around and expected, you know, the, the manna from heaven. They were sorely uh, misinformed that that's the way it worked. But when Governor Bradford instituted this idea and people got to work uh, seven acres per family member they ended up with such a harvest that they led to a celebration and that was the very first thanksgiving in america so here here they showed this this kind of approach of uh, not being tied to this this idea that we have to share everything and that you basically took care of yourself um led to surprising results. They had more than enough for the entire community. And the following year, they actually started to grow. So keeping that in mind, as we uh, we look at, after that, the, you know, the, the um, migrants that came from Europe, many of them were outcasts. Many of them were trying to flee debt. Um, they, were, they came here and they didn't have the, you know, the same kind of... Uh, uh, work ethic that they 
Otherwise, it was had they been successful, they probably would have stayed in Europe. But these were people that were on the run in many cases, looking for a place to build a new life. So some of them came over as indentured servants. In other words, they they promised to uh, if somebody would pay their passage, they would promise them so many years worth of service. And if you recall, there was indentured servitude was something that was banned by one of the amendments of the Constitution, along with slavery. But uh, by the way, we see indentured servants right now with what's going on on our southern border with a lot of those uh, uh, unoccupied or unaccompanied uh, youngsters who are sold off into sex slavery and into various kinds of indentured servitude. But it's supposedly banned in our country, by the way. And you have to wonder, you know, why the, the Biden administration continues to allow this to happen when it's a clear violation of it. Doesn't seem to bother him much. So as people sort of come over and uh, you know, expecting that something to somebody to give them something for nothing, I quickly found out that that's a quick way to starve. And so the the uh, but the opportunities were there through the land and through uh, all the natural resources that it developed this um, what we call the, the the Protestant work ethic, uh, which basically it was it was a matter of you you take care of yourself, and that doesn't mean that you're being selfish. It's just a matter of, of common sense. It's a matter of survival. So taking care of oneself later on, as, as uh, explained at, at length by Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, and it's a good read, by the way, if you're into economics, he uh, shows that basically by by improving yourself, you help the, the lives of others. <clears throat> by solving a problem of others, you enhance yourself or you, get, you have reward for it. So in order to see the uh, um, a free nation grow, there has to be cooperation of uh, talents and cooperations of effort for whatever ta- one's talents may may take them. So the as the um, the uh, idea of the uh, Yankee ingenuity and uh, the hard scrabble type of approach to life, uh, it didn't mean that it was any easier. It was just that it was it was a, a method that worked. But as time went on, and of course our country grew, and there was there was less uh, uh, ability or or less um, need to be out there, you know, clearing land and things like that. Cities started to develop, and with cities and and populations, and there was divisions of labor, and you had maybe one man was a tanner, another was a physician, another one uh, was um, you know made wooden kegs. You know, you, you get the idea. So there was a, a specialization of labor. But in order for that to work, again, one had to um, use their talents, God-given talents, to make something or to do something that uh, solved a problem for somebody else. And in return, they were paid for it. So that solved their problem. By helping others, we help ourselves, was, I guess, is really the simplest way to look at that. When we come up to the Civil War, uh, remember, again, we had we talked a little bit before about how the uh, development of uh, Eli Whitney's cotton gin. And basically the cotton gin, it would separate the fibers of cotton from the seeds. So they would have pure cotton to take it, then take to the mills and then spin them out and those sorts of things and make uh, fabrics out of them. The South was highly, uh, uh, the growth of the South was was greatly enhanced by the the cotton. Cotton was a very um, sought after uh, commodity and many of the, the crops from the south prior to the civil war were sent to england and um, this was created an imbalance of of trade if you will between the north and the south because of the uh, ease of of uh, being able to pick cotton they had an abundance of of unskilled labor and uh, it it really uh, made quite the difference in what had formerly been an agricultural um area that uh, depended upon uh, the growth of tobacco. Incidentally, in early, well, the early uh, colonies in Virginia, it was uh, uh, growth of uh, tobacco was against the law. And if you, excuse me, if you, if you uh, possess the tobacco seeds, it was punishable by death. So most of the uh, English tobacco uh, was grown in the uh, uh, in the Caribbean area. They didn't want it in America, but you know somebody 
brought some in. And next thing you know, they're growing, they're growing tobacco. And of course, tobacco is in great demand over in Europe. And it became a real uh, powerful boost to the economy of the South. But it took a lot of intense labor to make it uh, uh, profitable. And uh, therefore, it had fewer hands on it. And of course, the the, uh, the price for what they got for it was enough to sustain the economy of the South. But the Civil War came around, and all of a sudden, there's this great demand for a lot of new technology, uh, as every war does. Uh, it's, it's always about building better weapons in order to defeat the enemy. But here we had uh, interstate uh, movement going on with railroads. We had uh, the shipping industry. Uh, up and down the Mississippi River, the whole way up to Pittsburgh, uh, and uh, these sorts of things that the need for uh, ability to make products that could be shipped to feed armies, uh, you know, developing things like canned food was just a real uh, important asset for an army to have. You know, later it was described that as an army travels on its stomach. Well, if you can't keep your soldiers fed, they're not going to fight very well. But somebody came up with the idea that you could solder the lids on tin cans and food would be preserved. Prior to that, all the other foods, such as in the earlier campaign, the French and Indian War, they would uh, they would keep uh, cabbage in, in uh, basically salt water and, of course, salt pork. And uh, that was their diet. But when it came with the Civil War and, and all the mobility involved, uh, they were able to uh, transport that through the railroads and things like that. So there was a great demand for industrial products. And this is probably why the, the uh, North was able to succeed in the, in the Civil War is because of the, the industrial revolution that had been taking place in their cities, where in the South didn't have that advantage. They pretty much had to import any of the technologies of war. So there was, uh, by the end of the 19th century, these uh, uh, large companies that created a lot of this uh, industrial, uh, these industrial products, they're in great demand for workers. And the workers were imported from Europe, including my, uh, my grandfather. Uh, they were promised that uh, the, the coal companies and the steel companies would go over to Europe, in the middle of Europe, into some of these poor countries and, and offer them uh, passage to the U.S. if they would uh, you know, would work here. So uh, they would come over, and when they got to uh, Rikers Island, they would, of course, check them and make sure they weren't sick. If you were sick, you weren't admitted. But if you were admitted, then they would these these companies would greet these men and say, "What do you want to do? You want to you want to work in the coal mines, or you work in the steel mills?" And if you're in coal mines, you go one way and steal most to another. They pack them all in on the railroads, and off they go. Uh, and this is what happened with my grandfather. He was uh, he came here, and then he, he worked the coal mine. When he first year here, he lived in what was called poverty flats, and that was not uncommon for many of the uh, the immigrants that came here seeking a better way of life, it was much better than what they had, but. It was uh, the growth of the uh, the technology that demanded all this labor had a huge effect on the economy of sorts. And with these large companies beginning to uh, abuse the laborers, it wasn't until Teddy Roosevelt came along after the assassination of McKinley, uh, traveling in through Pennsylvania on a, on a train through the, uh, the coal fields of uh, Clearfield County, Center County, and he saw that the, the masses of uh, Europeans, and particularly the Slovaks, uh, from which my ancestry comes, how they were being mistreated. And from that, then he intervened with uh, to, to settle some uh, strikes that were going on between the, you know, the coal and the railroads and, and the owners of the coal mines. And so that was the first time that a president got involved with labor. But out of all of that, it was necessary because uh, in, in, in Roosevelt's mind that uh, the production of the availability of coal was something that was of natural national interest. So he was sort of went out of line to do this. It wasn't a traditional role of the president to do it, but he did. And it was because he was touched by this, what he had seen uh, riding on the train coming down through Pennsylvania to after he was sworn in. Now, at that time, 
there was also a lot of push between the progressives. We, I think we mentioned before that President Wilson was a real progressive, and he, he was also a racist, but he believed in the administrative state, and he believed that uh, that we could study the administrative states of foreign governments and learn something from them. And uh, there might be something to be said for that. But the real change in the uh, economics of liberty came with the introduction of the federal income tax in, in uh, 1913. And remember, it was sold to be uh, only at the, the highest level, supposed to be at 7% for so, the so-called rich. But by the end of the, uh, the decade, the First World War, that top rate had uh, risen to like 73%. And the end result of this high tax rate was that the federal income tax revenue dropped and they actually had uh, a national debt that ballooned to like $24 million. I mean, it's a mere pittance today in our, our terms, but $24, million then, $24 billion then is probably like a trillion today when you figure how many times the dollar has been devaluated. But after the, the success of World War I, um, there was a, a new spirit in America that we could do anything. We became a world power, and uh, money was available. And if, because of the war effort, there was a lot of jobs that were, that were going on. And again, technology boosting the uh, the availability of goods and services uh, into the even into the rural uh, parts of the country. So the, America felt pretty good about itself, and this is what they call the Roaring Twenties. Uh, people got. Uh, it was happy days were here again, and they were spending their money and, and not necessarily very wisely. And after a while, they felt they could get rich by just investing in the stock market. Well, as we know, by the end of that decade, that the um, uh, <laughs> that all went up in smoke. But uh, President uh, Calvin Coolidge, uh, during the time of the 20s when he was president, he uh, he brought the tax rates down. And uh, that was uh, the lowest or the highest rate for the rich was 25%. And the tax revenue, in, uh, federal income tax revenue increased threefold. This, uh, uh, this was able to uh, use to reduce the national debt to $18 billion. Remember, it was $24 billion before they had the tax cut. So cutting taxes, uh, which generated greater revenue, was something that caught the eye of Andrew Mellon who was the secretary of the treasury. And he saw that lowering the rates of the high tax rates on the wealthy led to increase in revenues flowing into the national treasury. And, and the reason being is that people of means or people of wealth have the resources to move their money away with investments and things such that they don't have to, they can avoid taxes. And it's, you can't blame them for doing it, but the, uh, but it was the golden rule of money, which is he who has the gold rules. And uh, they had the gold and they had the ability to do things that the average person could not. So, But then along came President Herbert Hoover. So he started to spend some of the surpluses with more government programs. And remember, more government programs take away freedom. The more governments you have, the less freedom you have, the less liberty you have. So with the... Uh, uh, the, the uh, foolishness of the of the roaring twenties. We've got uh, the get rich quick type of schemes on Wall Street, and people invested money in the stock market. And then with that, they when it crashed, they uh, everybody had a real serious problem. So we had we went from like unemployment of one, less than one percent. Now we're into the fifteen and twenty percent unemployment. And on top of that, there was uh, the great uh, the Dust Bowl days. Now. Let's go back a little bit here. Um, back in 1889, Congress declared two million lands of, or two million acres of land in, in the Oklahoma Territory uh, that that had been seized from the natives, and they claimed to be part of the public domain. So soon after that, the uh, the federal government offered 160 acres uh, of land for free to anybody willing to settle there. So there was a big rush, and, and people went and laid out their claims, and things were looking pretty good. And then by the 20s, we had mechanized farm equipment, which was using the moldboard plow, which is the kind of plow that turns the, 
the ground over and it looks like a, a little row or you will and they did this over tens of thousands of acres without much regard to what happens when you expose all that land this these are the great prairies where you know buffalo and antelope and all that's that uh, lived for for hundreds of years if not longer and the the ground was deeply suited or deeply uh, rooted in the, the grasses of the, the of the prairies well, when they turned them over to, to generate other crops, or crops, they uh, eventually uh, overused the land, and the soils left to dry out. And then, of course, you have the, the Midwest can get very warm, and with that on top of everything and a, and a lack of rain, the, uh, the the wind came along and it carried a lot of the topsoil away as dust, and even as far away as Washington, D.C., you can imagine that. So this was a huge problem, but it was devastating to the price of uh, of food. So here we have the uh, crashing of the Wall Street crash, and then we have the top of the Great Dust Bowl adding on to it. And the end result is that people were really in a, in a hard way, in a bad way. And uh, after having... Uh, personally experienced 26% unemployment in the, my hometown of Johnstown. I can tell you that uh, people can do some pretty strange things when when money gets really tight. So all of this uh, pain and suffering was going on. Uh, there was this group of people calling for the government to intervene. And then we have along comes uh, Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he had this theory that he was... Uh, basing his policies on what's called Keynesian uh, economic theory. And basically what it was, was that whenever things got bad, the government would have to step in with spending, even borrowing money to do it. And that way they would jumpstart the economy and then happy days would be here again. Well, that's not exactly what happened. But the uh, because we had, the, now we had uh, from the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was set up in 1887, I think we talked about that before, and the fourth branch of government, uh, FDR used this model to continue to expand the federal government, not only in, in influence and in uh, areas, but they also on uh, they needed money to do things. So instead of having people working out their own problems uh, using the, the, what was available to them locally, now that you know federal uh, government was going to go and fix everything, so people took their eyes off of their own needs and their own abilities, they started listening to the FDR's uh, talk about how he's going to fix everything. And then so that's how he got elected and re-elected and re-elected and re-elected. But the, uh, at the same time, the personal freedom was being taken away because they gave up a, uh, a little freedom for their security, which Ben Franklin warned us greatly about. But, but in, in the mo in throes of destitute, they became, uh, they're willing to take anything. But remember what the pilgrims did. They got to work. Whenever you had FDR coming along and offering money, that's, people stopped working. So here we have uh, a number of uh, his efforts were challenged by before the Supreme Court and found to be unconstitutional, but he really didn't care because the money had already been spent and he got what he wanted done. So uh, he, he talked about trying to expand the court so he could have more influence there and do more of his growth of government. But remember, this was all about the economics of what was going on at the time. So one of the bigger things that uh, FDR also did is he took us off the, uh, the gold standard, which was in, in constitutionally mandated in Article 1, Section 10. And that, uh, when you take the standard off of a currency, uh, there's a reason that there's a certain value to that, that standard is because the amount or the availability of that, uh, the gold or whatever precious metals, that there's a limit, limited supply. Because there's a limited supply, finite supply, at the time when the value is uh, made, uh, it stabilizes the, the, the currency value. But when you take... The, the gold standard away and you start looking at this this uh, value determined by uh, basically economics or, or whatever uh, it can become anything very quickly so without that 
finite ability or finite uh, amount of uh, the standard of, of the monetary unit, then they're off to the races and here comes inflations and here comes uh, the value of the dollar dropping and it it's becomes negotiable. With the standard of gold, it was not negotiable because there was a finite amount of them. So with that, then we he's FDR is cruising along through the Great Depression and he has his fireside chats and things. Japanese sauce is being weak and uh, because of our troubles, and they decided to attack us on December 7th, 1941, and that was a day of infamy. And there we were now facing uh, a war on two fronts. And because this was the, the mood of nationalism really got us out of the Depression, and it wasn't FDR's uh, Keynesian economics. It was that people finally said, look, it's something that's very important to all of us. We have to get together. World War II galvanized the country, and because the country became galvanized, they had a, a, a target, a goal, beat the enemy. They all chipped in, and everything was fine. The economy started to move. And all the technology, of course, they were making cars, uh, and car dealers or, or car manufacturers were making tanks, and the, you know ships and things like that, and weapons of war. and uh, But it got everybody to stop thinking about the, the troubled times of the economy and to focus on survival of uh, the, the nation. Of course, there's debt involved, and we undertook a lot of debt to do it, but ultimately uh, we emerged from World War II as being the world superpower, the only world superpower. Now, along comes into the 40s and 50s, we go into we had other conflicts such as uh, the nuclear threat, the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, and we also had uh, uh, the competition for space. That's what the Russians put their first uh, monkey up there, Sputnik, and we uh, eventually, kind of, President Kennedy challenged us to go to the moon, which we did in 1969. But all of this was stimulated the economy through national products or, or national projects. Uh, so there was more of a, a top-down ordering, but uh, the advancements and the, and the uh, technology that came out of, of uh, reaching these goals had, uh, had uh, improved the, uh, the lives of all Americans. Uh, Teflon, for example, we take for granted that came out of the space race. Um, different types of dehydrated foods, different types of metals such as titanium, uh, came out of the space race. And, and the way we take those things for granted, I mean, I use titanium every day when I use my dental implants. So that titanium came out of the space uh, exploration. So there were a lot of advantages, a lot of great things come out of it, but it was a, a top-down kind of project. But the, the uh, Kennedy administration, they, they understood uh, the economics of freedom. And they uh, John Kennedy brought the taxes down, and, and lo and behold, there they were, the revenues to the coffers of the federal government increased. And things were moving along until he was assassinated. And we, we find lately that uh, there was the CIA that killed him. I remember those days. I know exactly where I was sitting in my grade school uh, classroom when it came over the intercom that, that Kennedy was shot. Well, after Kennedy was gone, then Johnson came in. Now, Johnson was a, a senator from Texas who was just—he was just not a good guy. He was—he was got—he uh, was embittered. He—he he had a lot of political enemies that he hated. And there was a couple of, of ministers in Texas who uh, began speaking out against him from the pulpit, and he didn't like that. So he got the Senate to, to put together a bill that was supposedly to silence. Uh, political talk from the pulpit and that was that really had a profound effect and the idea was that if you uh, you were using the pulpit to speak about politics in this case it was about lbj you would lose your tax exempt status so you're using the irs as a as a weapon to silence their critics something we've seen more of locally too but lb lbj was he was just not a good guy but he was president because of kennedy's assassination and i think the only reason he was vice president prior to that was because he was from Texas and they needed the votes. Well, the LBJ comes along with this idea of a great society. He's going to solve poverty you know, in Appalachia. He's going to solve poverty all over the country. And they started a whole number of uh, different welfare programs. 
that uh, supposedly was going to make it fair for everybody. But as time went on, it became rather clear that all this money that was going into the great society programs, that very little of it actually made it down to the hands of the people who needed it the most. It created great bureaucracies, which also was populated by people who made a lot of money for, for good salaries and good benefits with retirement and all that sort of stuff. But the guy that they're supposed to be helping out down the bottom of the ladder is getting very little of this. But at the same time, because there was such a, a politically uh, charged way of doing this and this solving the war, you know, became, it was called the war on poverty. Winning the war on poverty was something that was was popular so when it came around that they were running out of money and you have the vietnam war going on at the same time well lbj couldn't leave well enough alone he started tapping in the social security trust funds and promising to pay him back someday so he left an iou in there and ever since doing that the social security trust fund has been funding you know government projects that had nothing to do with with preserving the funds that uh, people who paid into social security I would expect to get at some point in return in their lives. So what was happening was that these social safety nets were becoming more of a hammock than uh, for the dependent class. And of course, with that, uh, there was a permanent class of voters. And that's really what uh, uh, what uh, LBJ wanted. And, uh, and he made a comment that, uh, you know, give them uh, welfare things and those n-word will vote for democrats forever he actually said that if you look it up on google so th this was really a it was an attempt to to coalesce his power for a very unpopular president doing an unpopular war but the uh it's what they did and you know we're looking at those great society programs that continue to this day they've they basically amount to about as much as our national debt prior to the, the biden administration so at the same time with this in the in the 50s and 60s and these again remember i remember because i lived these years there was also a a, a big cultural change that went on uh, the the world war ii generation came out they were they were toughened by the experience and and they were sick and tired of war and they're sick and tired of destruction and they raised their families uh in a in a way that had not been prior available in this country and it meant that there was you know affluence to where they kids could go to school they could they had safe communities uh they could aspire to different things and, and uh, they'd have a future well on top of all of that we also had technological advancements in medicine i remember as a kid we were getting polio shots because there were people that actually young people getting polio and they couldn't breathe they had to live in an iron lung all their lives i mean a scary kind of thing but uh, jonas salk at the university of pittsburgh developed a vaccine and we used to get shots in our arm, or we later on you would just take a, a sugar cube. But I remember standing up in line getting those things. So that's happened. But also, you've had a, a major change happen you know, with women because it came about with the development of the birth control pill, and because of that, they could uh, control uh, pregnancy or, or avoiding pregnancy. That freed them up to do a lot of the things that they wanted to. They felt they wanted to do. And the whole push for uh, to become you know, involved with careers rather than families had a profound effect on the future growth of the country and uh, the, the country's uh, the labor and, and population. Uh, it, at this time, then, we also had the Planned Parenthood people who were uh, was founded to reduce the population of the blacks in America and uh, this through abortion services and things like that. And currently, they've been very successful at this. And currently, there's there's more black babies aborted in New York City than there are that are born. But it was, remember, it was a racist thing. Planned Parenthood and abortion was a racist thing. But it brought about, because of these offers about how uh, government's uh, welfare programs would take care of people, take care of women or single women. And uh, they basically left the guys out. And so the... The, the more children they had uh, with great society, uh, the more money you got from the government. The more money you got from the government, the less you needed to have a man around to be a wage earner to support the family. And between the uh, the uh, birth control pills and the, and the women's liberation, the feminist movement, and the uh, 
availability of all this money coming from LBJ's Great Society, the end result was that it radically changed the relationship between men and women. And a lot of these um, uh, families or a lot of these kids were growing up in fatherless uh, uh, homes because the government's uh, money coming in basically replaced the wage owner, replaced the role of a father. And the kids that grew up in those environments, and then even to this day, have a tendency towards gangs and have a tendency towards crime. And something like 70% of all the young people in prison uh, came from fatherless homes. It's the greatest problem that we have in our country today with our social problems are coming from the lack of fathers. And this happened because a great society basically pushed men out, made men irresponsible. You know, after World War II, uh, they had a similar situation going on in Russia because so many of the Russian men were killed in, in the war that there was like the 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 women were two to one uh, over men. And so men were uh, considered to be prized to, ha to be married, was considered to be a prize. But in order to keep them in the competition between women was to uh, basically do the work so that men became lazy and they turned to alcoholism and things like that because they didn't have to be a father. They didn't have to be a household wage earner. And what happened was that the alcoholism ran rampant in Russia and it, it uh, the effects linger to this day. The relationship between men and women, whenever government comes into this, uh, it is a profound effect on the social social culture that emerges from the next generation. So here we are driven by great, uh, the great society of LBJ and uh, creating a dependent class with people on welfare for two or three generations, uh, running up a tab that's equivalent to our national debt. And to, to whom did it help? Well, Democrats, uh, prior to 1994, Democrats held uh, the majority in Congress for 40 years. They did that by buying with borrowed money, promising great society kinds of solutions. So... Here again, when when might becomes right, the people are in bondage. Well, the might of the federal dollars through welfare handouts put people in, in bondage. But, you know, when right becomes might, people are free. So over like 100 years, we've had radical change in the relationship between the federal government and individual freedom. And uh, it's, I think that it's important to understand that at a snapshot in time of what it was like 100 years or so ago, actually 150, and by a quote by uh, Abraham Lincoln, and I want to read this to you. It's a quote, what constitutes the bulwark of our own liberty and independence? Is it not our frowning battlements and bristling seacoasts or army or navy? These are not our reliance on tyranny. All these may be turned against us without making us weaker for the struggle. Our reliance is on the love of liberty which God has planted in us. Our defense is in the spirit that prized liberty as the heritage of all men in all lands everywhere. Destroy the spirit and you have planted the seeds of despotism at your door. Well, the, end of quote. The Great Society Welfare Programs did that. They destroyed the spirit of liberty and as a result, there's a social chaos and, and the, a lot of the ills we have with crime and gangs and such and drugs came about because of the government getting involved in areas that they had no business to. So this was uh, uh, the economic theory, the Keynesian theory that uh, FDR pushed on us uh, from you know, during the times of the Great Depression and uh, became a way of life. And uh, simultaneous to this over in Germany, you know, we had uh, Karl Marx, who came up with this Das Kapital book, where he explains how capitalism or privatism is going to fail because people are too foolish to know how to handle their money. Well, you know, Karl Marx was—he didn't have a regular job; he was basically living off the money of his an independent uh, wealth of friend, and uh, but yet he thought he could, uh, you know, understand the economy. But even he later on uh, uh, realized that much of what he had written earlier as a younger man was failing um, and you put that together with the uh, um, some of the other social changes that were occurring at the same time and it was just pie in the sky theory so as we move forward through the 50s and 60s and 70s 
we have the, the Vietnam War winding down, the great societies growing. Uh, along comes uh, Richard Nixon, who was uh, you know elected basically when because Johnson refused to uh, he made such a mess of the presidency, he, he decided he wasn't going to run again. So here we go, and uh, Nixon comes along, made a lot of corrections, but we were not in a good good place, and and the uh, now we're dealing with international oil embargoes, we're dealing with with the unpopular war in Vietnam, uh, even though the military was capable of winning that war, the, the social upheaval that was coming through the colleges and such. Uh, through the younger people, led to uh, a withdrawal that was an embarrassment at best. And then whenever Nixon was uh, uh, near impeachment and he resigned over the Watergate affair, it created a whole generation of uh, journalists who thought that now they could play kingmaker. And we see the effect of that even to this day with what's happening with uh, former President Trump. It's the media has decided they're going to play kingmaker versus the voters. But all of this is coming about because of shifting the notion of liberty uh, through the use of economic forces away from the individual into the government's hand. And the more you remember the, the, the golden rule, he who has the gold rules, and with more and more people dependent on government, the, the lack of freedom just continues to uh be or the freedom continues to be lost. Along comes Jimmy Carter. Things got worse. They were always talking about the glasses uh, half empty, and we all got to roll up our sleeves and turn our thermostats down and wear sweaters uh, to deal with the the lack of or the rising prices of fuel, rising prices of uh, of uh, energy. I remember those times when. If you were to fill your car up with gas, if you had a license plate with an even number, you got it on one day, and if you had an odd number, you got it on the next. That's all done, Jimmy Carter. Along comes Ronald Reagan. He turned all that around. We see growth again. Surpluses are coming back in. Taxes are lowered. It looks like uh, the they wanted to uh, one of the projects was to pay back the Social Security Trust Fund and reduce the national debt. But then remember, the Democrats were in control, and that wasn't going to happen. So it really wasn't until Ronald Reagan got into the Cold War with the Soviets and that uh, he started talking about Star Wars and all this uh, uh, innovation of technology to deal with the, the potential nuclear threat of Russia that got that all got the country going again. And the money was rolling into the, the coffers of the government because taxes were lower and things were happening. The 80s were, were a good time. But then along comes uh, Herbert... Uh, George Herbert Bush, and uh, he sort of threw away the or blew the, uh, the happy days of uh, Reagan, and Bill Clinton was elected. Well, Clinton was uh, the, the only good thing in the 90s was that uh, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans uh, got back under control of uh, the Congress in 1994, and he actually had uh, a balanced budget. Amazing. <laughs> They hadn't had one prior to that in, in the 50s. So here's the pattern again. We see the, the tax cuts. Uh, this was followed with George Bush when he was elected in the 2000s. The tax cuts produce economic benefits uh, to people as well as brought greater revenues into the, the Treasury, which could be used to reduce the debt or to uh, use more wisely. But rather than doing that, the increased tax revenues was simply spent and that just created a, a bigger and bigger mess. So along with some of the other programs started by Bill Clinton with housing and, and uh, trying to have affordable housing and, and uh, the mortgage meltdown that occurred as a result of it in 2008. Um, again, government meddling created a mess for everybody. So the liberty of freedom of people, again, limited because of the meddling of the federal government in areas that they had no business. So the... Um, I'm going to continue on that on the line about the uh, uh, the effects of the of the uh, energy, uh, oil and and natural gas, and now we've got the climate change people getting involved with the the economics of liberty, and it seems like uh, they because the the politicians that we have today have been so uh, 
ingrained to believe that their their whole purpose of life is to make more government because they've been there forever. They they are no longer accountable to voters. They're just the special interests have them locked in with their monies. So they now become a function of uh, these wild ideas about say about climate. Uh, and it, and the result is more and more uh, uh, emphasis on these regulations and tie this together with all the the uh, the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy, and used to watch American freedom just slip away. This all, all had gone along, and uh, Obama came along, and Barry Soweto was his real name, by the way, not Barack Obama, and with with dubious credentials and uh, uh, with a normal media, you'd expect that they would have uh, vetted him, but they didn't. They wanted to have this guy in there because of what he believed. And he came in and he was going to change everything with hope that we can believe in, hope and change. Well, he did, and the economy took a setback. Then Donald Trump comes along, and he starts reversing a lot of these policies. And guess what? The economy grows again. Well, we know from the Kennedy experience, from, from going back to the 20s when the taxes were lowered, uh, back through the... Um, uh, the Reagan years, taxes were lowered. It always means greater revenue and there's more activity and there's more things happening. Well, Trump just came in. In a matter of a few years, he turned all that around. And, of course, the left's going crazy because it means that their their base of power is less and they have less control over people when people have more of their own money. Well, along comes Biden. And Biden is, I call him President Magoo because this guy just leaves us a path of destruction behind him. And we see these results in the uh, the economy today and, and put this all you know, going on at the same time as the COVID epidemic and expansion of government and telling people what to do with their masks and whether they could go to school or not or whether they could protest in the streets but they couldn't go to church. And it just really hit into, I think, hit home that the Americans realized that our amount of freedom that we've had just within a few uh, decades is substantially less than we had uh, after this COVID mess and with under the the toolage of uh, President Biden. At this time, it looks like uh, at 80-some years old, he's going to try to run again, but uh, I I seriously doubt whether anybody's going to vote for this guy, even Democrats, because he's he's cognitively uh, compromised. So that's the economics of liberty. The more government you have, the more handouts you have, the more um, they play with the currencies, the more they play, play around with the energy that we have, uh, the taxes we have, that all relates to personal freedom in a capitalist society. Um, so when when might is right, we live in bondage. When right is might, we live in freedom. When right becomes wrong, we live in chaos. This is what we're seeing today. Until either might or right becomes powerful. If it's might, we're in bondage. If it's right, we're free. Dr. Bill Choby, uh, finishing up another chapter here in Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future. I know this was long. I hope I didn't lose anybody over this, but I, I think it was uh, a good discussion to have, and uh, I, I thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Mm-hmm.